Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Secret of the Samurai Sword by Phyllis A. Whitney. Chapter 4. Encounter Near the Shrine That night, Celia snuggled between her layers of Japanese futon and found sleeping on the floor a comfortable and cozy experience. The tatami was so springy to begin with, it wasn't like sleeping on a hard floor. She wished Mom and Dad could see her in her strange bed. Stephen must have felt the same way because he called out to her softly through the thin fusuma that separated their rooms. Hey, Celia, are you asleep? No, I'm not, she whispered back. Wouldn't Mom and Dad flip over this place? Wish they were here. So do I, Celia said and felt comfortingly close to Stephen. It was nice to have an older brother, even if he didn't always approve of her. When they were little, she'd tagged around after him and thought he was smarter than any other boy and better at doing everything. He played with her more then, and sometimes he used to stick up for her with the older kids. But of course, they'd grown up since then, and Mom said that things couldn't very well stay the same between them. But perhaps here in Japan, when they were such a long way from home, If only she hadn't forgotten that flight bag. She spoke to him again, softly. Are you still mad about the bag? Honestly, I'm sorry. Okay, okay, he broke in. But it was such a little thing to remember. Seriously. Sophie was still upset about it. And she couldn't blame him. It was true that sometimes she did the dumbest things. Mostly because she was thinking about something else or too excited to think at all. Stephen never understood about that. Well, she would just have to do better here, and perhaps she really could if she tried hard enough. She fell asleep still sorry about the bag, and a little homesick, too. With the whole Pacific Ocean between, her parents and home seemed very far away indeed. Once during the night, Celia wakened and listened to the night sounds of Kyoto. In the distance, the horns of trucks and taxis continued their insistent uproar. It was a good thing this little house was up a side street here on the hill where little traffic came through. From a balcony near at hand drifted plaintive strains of music played on some unfamiliar stringed instrument. Over and over again, plink, 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 striking the same few sad, strange notes sounding utterly lonely in the quiet street. Now and then a clopping sound went past the house, and at first Celia couldn't figure it out. Then she remembered the geta, the wooden clogs she had seen on so many Japanese feet, and knew that they would make just this kind of sound. Still closer in the garden, insects chirped and buzzed endlessly. She had not known the night could be filled with so many sounds. At home in Berkeley, she didn't notice night sounds at all. Being used to them, she didn't even hear boat whistles or foghorns out in the bay. If it hadn't been so comfortable and cozy beneath her quilts, she might have crept out of bed and gone barefoot across the tatami to the veranda to look down upon the garden. Perhaps if she were lucky one of these nights, she might catch the gentle little Japanese ghost who sometimes came there. She smiled to herself at the whimsy, and her eyelids drooped sleepily. Somewhere on a nearby street sounded the mournful notes of a street vendor's flute. The little tune was haunting, and she wanted to remember it. 
but she fell asleep before the few notes were within her grasp. She slept longer than she meant to in the morning and was wakened by something sniffing in her ear. She opened her eyes to look into the yellow gaze of the ginger cat. It mewed in a friendly fashion and ran a sandpaper tongue over her hand. The same moment, Gran came along the veranda, ready for the day. Ohio goes on, Masu, Celia-san. That means a very polite good morning to you. Your brother is already up and around, and Setsuko-san is ready to start the bacon and eggs. I'll get up right away, Celia said, and scrambled out from under the covers. She dressed quickly and then went out to the front veranda to have a look at Kyoto in the daytime. Thin sunshine had broken through the clouds, and now she could see for a considerable distance. The city occupied a great plain, and all around it were wooded mountains. Their own hillside was at the foot of a steep, tree-covered slope. Kyoto was still a city of gray rooftops, but now she could see green sections of trees, and here and there the red flash of a shrine or a temple. In one place, standing up in plain view and towering above everything near it, was an enormous red gate, which Gran said meant the approach to a Shinto shrine. The Japanese, it seemed, had two kinds of religion, somewhat mixed up together, Buddhism and Shinto. The Buddhists had temples, and the Shinto sects, shrines, but often the Japanese would belong to both groups at once. Now Celia could smell bacon frying and discovered that she was ravenously hungry. So she hurried down the stairs, her pink plastic slippers flapping against the polished wood. At the breakfast table, Gran talked about plans for the day. She had put on harlequin glasses with blue rims to examine an opened-out map. I'm sorry I can't be with you much this morning. I've had to arrange several appointments with people who are hard to catch, but you'll both find plenty to do. I've marked the location of our house on this map so you can tell where you are. I know you'll want to explore, but for a few days don't wander very far from home. After I've had a chance to take you downtown and you have a better idea of the city, then you can go where you like. You're perfectly safe anywhere. The Japanese love children, and they're always especially kind to foreign visitors. If you get lost, you can hop in a taxi and show the driver the map. The small 60-yen taxis are almost as cheap as buses or streetcars at home. After breakfast, Celia went to the front gate of the house and stood in its tile-roofed opening, watching the children go off to school. The Japanese school term was long, with little time allowed for vacation, so classes were still in session. Although their street ended at the top of the hill, another narrow street crossed it at the top and ran parallel to the hill behind the house. From this street came boys and girls of all ages, joining others who poured in from their street. The girls wore dark skirts and white blouses, the boys dark trousers and white shirts. A good many of the girls had their hair cut in a straight bob, with black bangs across the forehead. The older boys wore caps with visors. Most of the children had on shoes and socks, but there were still many with bare feet in gaita. As they hurried past Celia, the girls whispered and threw shy glances her way. The boys nudged each other and laughed. She stood in the gateway, watching, until far down the hill, the road was a sea of black and white figures. The sight made her feel a little lonely. Here were hundreds of boys and girls she couldn't talk to. 
How could you ever make friends when you couldn't make the simplest words be understood? She glanced across the street toward the house she had noted the night before and saw that the girl she had seen on the upstairs veranda stood in her own gateway. She was not dressed in the uniform the schoolgirls wore, but had on a green cotton summer dress. She too was watching the sea of boys and girls pour out of the adjacent streets and join the stream in the wider main street below. Celia wondered why she wasn't going to school with the others. Once the girl glanced in her direction, but then looked quickly away. After the behavior of the old man last night, Celia did not attempt to smile at her again. As the other girl waited, two little girls and a boy ran out of the house. They did not wear the uniforms of the bigger school children, but ordinary western dress. The two little girls tugged at the older girl's skirt to pull her into the street, but she held back, waiting. A few more children from the alley above went past, and Celia saw that they stared at the Japanese girl almost as strangely as they stared at her. And the girl did not speak to any of them. Perhaps she was a newcomer here, too, Celia thought, in which case they certainly ought to be friends. It was a little boy who must have been about six who settled matters. He gave his two sisters, who were smaller than he was, a good, rough push from behind and chattered something commanding in Japanese to the older girl. She shook her head at him, and he would have pushed her too, but she reached out suddenly and caught his hand. She lifted him up in the air and gave him a good shaking before she set him down on his feet again. He opened his mouth in astonishment and anger and screamed lustily while his two little sisters shrank back against the gate and stared at the older girl in dismay. The boy's screams brought a woman running out of the house to catch him up and soothe his tears. Although she couldn't understand a word of what had been said, Celia could see exactly what the pantomime meant. The boy was wailing to his mother about Big Girl's rude treatment. His mother appeared to be murmuring indignant words to the girl and directing her down the street, though she didn't raise her voice at all, and her manner remained polite. Celia was inclined to side with the girl for shaking the rough little boy. The older girl said nothing but didn't look a bit contrite. She held out her hands to the two little girls and started down the hill, with the boy running on ahead, laughing now and taunting her. Not once did she glance Celia's way, though she probably knew that the whole affair had been witnessed by the American girl across the street. There was something strange going on in that house, Celia thought, as she left the gate and went around to the rear garden. Stephen had just come out of the house with his camera slung around his neck and Graham behind him. For the first time, Stephen spied the concrete hulk in the middle of the garden and went over to give it a slap. What's this thing stuck here for? he asked. I believe it's a bomb shelter, Graham said. It doesn't help the looks of the garden, does it? Most Japanese simply dug caves in the hard clay earth, and those have been filled in since the war. But this thing is a lot harder to get rid of. I wonder what's down there, Stephen said. He walked around the lump of concrete, and Celia, following him, saw that there was a door set on the other side. Stephen turned the knob and shook it, but it was plainly locked, and he gave up without further interest. Are you off for some picture-taking? Gran asked. Stephen nodded. Might as well get started, though it'll be tough in this light with no meter. Don't you want to go along, Celia? Gran asked. 
She did, of course, but Stephen was thinking about that flight bag again, and he might not want her. She looked at him a little anxiously. Okay, come along, he said, not sounding enthusiastic, but then again, not turning her down either. Gran seemed not to notice his tone. She nodded briskly. That's fine. I think it might be a good idea, Celia, for you to stay with Stephen your first few trips away from the house. I'll go get my sketching things, Celia said quickly, and flew toward the house before Stephen could change his mind. Dashing in and out of a house in Japan was not as simple as it was at home. There was always the matter of taking off one's shoes, which she nearly forgot. But Tani was there to catch her and see that she put on the slippers. By the time she and Stephen started down the hill, the girl from across the street was out of sight with her charges. Just after they left the house, a strange-looking three-wheeled truck came up the hill. The front part was built like a motorcycle, even to the handles the driver held. Though he sat inside a closed cab, the back was a tiny truck. The whole thing came toward them with the loud noises of a motorcycle, and Stephen grinned as they flattened themselves against a bamboo fence to let it by. That's a bada bada, he said. The Japanese call them bada bada because that's the noise they kind of make. This one was delivering tiny six-ounce milk bottles to their house, since that was the only size in which pasteurized milk could be purchased. Their street opened onto a wider one now, but there were still no sidewalks. The road followed the contour of the hill, running at length into a pleasant park, with benches set around invitingly and a decorative bridge arched over a pond of water. Stephen stopped to take a picture, and Celia strolled downhill toward what looked like the buildings of a shrine. Traffic turned off at this point, but pedestrians were using the area as a thoroughfare, so there was clearly nothing private about it. There were buildings here and there with tiled roofs that curved up into sharp horns at the corners, and on the far side down the slope of the hill was a great red structure with a tiled roof that made an imposing entrance to the area. Celia wandered along, fascinated, wondering what she would most like to draw. A paved courtyard opened up around a turn, and she stopped in amazement. Thirty or forty children had spread out, all over the courtyard and were sitting happily on the stones with large sheets of drawing paper spread out before them. Every child was busily painting one or another of the views to be seen in the park-like shrine about them. The paintings were really very good for children of their age, Celia saw, and she was interested in the tubes of watercolors that they were using. The teacher noticed Celia and smiled at her. Hello, Celia said, longing to speak to somebody. At the sound of her voice, a number of the children looked up from their work and stared at her with unblinking black eyes. The teacher spoke to them, and the girls wrenched their fascinated gazes away and concentrated on their work again. The boys were less docile than the girls, then grinned at her saucily, and some of them tried out the word haro among themselves. Celia wished she could look more closely at the paintings but she didn't want to disrupt the class any further. Stephen came toward her down the hill, and she waved him away from the outdoor art class for fear he would go tromping through it. A walk shaded by pine trees paralleled the courtyard, and Celia moved toward that. She had seen a bench there in the shade, half concealed by the shrubbery, 
and she knew now just what she wanted to draw. Why don't you go and get some more pictures, she said to her brother. I'll stay here and wait for you and do some sketching. Stephen was all for that arrangement. That would leave him unhampered. So he went off without making his usual remarks about how long it took to get one picture when you had to draw it yourself. Celia seated herself on the stone bench and opened her sketchbook. If she could just capture on paper a semblance of those kneeling, squatting figures, so absorbed in their painting with the curved roof of the shrine building in the background, it would make an interesting picture. Her pencil moved on the paper. In this corner, she put a branch of a pine tree, just as it hung over her head. And beyond the kneeling children, she would draw a little stone lantern like the one in the garden of their Kyoto house. That was the thing Stephen never understood about painting a picture. You could use your imagination and add what wasn't there, or change what was, so that you ended up with something you had created yourself. That seemed much more satisfying than just pointing a camera and snapping the shutter. Though, of course, Stephen had his own notions about that. In no time she was as absorbed as the children she was drawing, and she didn't notice the encroaching wave of watchers until it had practically surrounded her. When one of the toddlers came around in front and stared right into her face, his mouth slightly opened in amazement over this strange phenomenon of a human being with yellow hair and blue eyes and such queer features. Celia looked up and saw she was again the center of attention. The collection of small children had gathered around her to stare, and beyond them were even some grown-ups, their attention caught by an American girl drawing, but not by the children beyond her in the courtyard. The watchers made a friendly, smiling group, but they kept edging a little closer until Celia knew she'd have to stop, because she couldn't draw with a crowd around her, and she didn't know how to tell them to go away, and she felt that that would be impolite anyway. So she closed the sketchbook, hoping that that would make them lose interest. But it didn't in the least. They were quite happy to continue staring, as if they had never seen anything so remarkable before, and were never likely to see it again. There was, she decided, nothing to do but give up her project and walk away. But before she could move, a girl came through the circle of watchers, clapping her hands right and left at the children and speaking rapidly in Japanese. Her black ponytail swung and joggled with the energy of her movements, and Celia saw in surprise that it was the girl from the house across the alley. Reluctantly, the throng of small children gave up staring and returned to their play, and the grown-ups smiled and went off in whatever direction they were headed. When she had dispersed the whole group, the other girl made a dusting gesture of brushing her palms together. Then she put her hands to her hips and stared at Celia herself, unsmiling and plainly as interested as any of the little ones had been. Somehow Celia knew she had to thank this girl for rescuing her. Haltingly, she struggled with the phrase she had heard Gran use, which she had practiced later. Arigato! Gozai Mashita, she stammered, and hoped that her pronunciation wasn't too awful for the other girl to understand. For the first time, the Japanese girl smiled in amusement. Oh, that's okay, she said. You're perfectly welcome. Her accent was as American as Celia's own, and it was startling to hear it there in the courtyard of a Kyoto shrine.
Chapter 5 For a moment, Celia stared at the other girl in astonishment. But, but you're, you are Japanese, she managed at length. The girl tossed her head and the ponytail bounced rebelliously. I'm not Japanese. I'm American. I'm just as American as you are. I was born in San Francisco and I've lived there all my life. Till a month ago. Now I'm here. She flung out her hands, taking in all of Kyoto with a scornful gesture. But you speak Japanese, Celia faltered. Sure, I speak it, but I can't help it that my parents were Japanese and taught it to me when I was little. But I'm American and I'm not going to let anybody forget it. It's wonderful to hear somebody speaking English, Celia murmured, wanting to lessen the other girl's indignation. I wondered why you didn't go to school with the others this morning. I don't want to go to school here, the girl said, changed the subject quickly. Where do you live in the States, and what's your name? Mine is Sumiko Sato. Mine's Celia Bronson, Celia told her. And I've always lived in Berkeley, right across the bay from San Francisco. So we're neighbors. In more ways than one, Sumiko sat down on the bench beside Celia. But I'll have to be careful about talking to you back there, she added, nodding toward the direction in which they both lived. My grandfather doesn't like Americans. Yeah, I saw what happened yesterday, Celia confessed. He told you to go into the house when I waved, didn't he? Is it because of the war he doesn't like us? Sumiko shrugged. He's very old-fashioned. I don't understand half of what he's talking about. All that stuff he goes for about ancestors and old Japan. But just because Hiro's a boy, he didn't say a word when he went over to see if you would teach him Japanese. Hiro? You mean the Japanese boy who came to see us yesterday? Yeah. Hero's my cousin. Our fathers were brothers. Now there was growing confusion. I should think Hero would get you to teach him English, since you speak it so well. Sumiko's black eyes snapped. She seemed too anxious to talk to someone in her native tongue. He thinks he's special because he's a boy. I should think by now Japan would be over the idea that boys are better than girls. But of course, Gentaro Sato would encourage him in that notion. Gentaro Sato? My grandfather. Everybody says he's very distinguished man in Japan. Quite a famous artist. But he's old-fashioned about his art, too. He only draws nature in the classic manner. They say that all through the war he sat in his room painting bees and blossoms. What a bore! But I liked what you were doing just now. Can I see? Oh, I've only just started, Celia said. But she opened her sketchbook and showed the page to Sumiko. She had blocked in the general scene, and in one place she had started drawing a little girl, squatting on her haunches as she used a paintbrush on her paper. I should think everyone would want to draw people, Sumiko said. But if you look at those things the kids are painting out there, you'll see they're mostly temples and trees with hardly ever a human being in them. Sometimes I think the Japanese don't really want anybody to be a person. My grandfather thinks everyone must fit a pattern that's been followed for hundreds of years. She jumped up restlessly, completely American in her manner and her every gesture. Yet Celia could not entirely accept her words. It seemed as if Sumiko was decidedly prejudiced against the Japanese. 
I've only been in Japan a few days, Celia said quietly, but so far I love it. My grandmother has been here several times, and she always comes back because she likes it so much. She's even writing a book about Japan. Well, that's all right for her, and for you too. Sumiko reached toward a pine branch over her head and broke off a sprig of needles and held it to her nose. You can all go home whenever you like, but I can't. I've got to stay here for ages, maybe my whole life. My grandfather wants to turn me into a proper Japanese girl. But I'm Nisei, and I'll never fit in out here. I don't want to. As Celia knew, a Nisei was a person who was born in America of Japanese parents. Sumiko sounded so upset that Celia felt sorry for her. What about your parents? she asked. Don't they want to go back to America? Not my mother. She grew up here in Kyoto. She's always wanted to come home. So when my father died... Sumiko blinked hard for a moment. That was just six months ago. She sold his greenhouse and prepared to come back to Japan. I wanted to stay behind, but I'm only 14 and they wouldn't let me. If I were older, I might have found a job. I wanted to go to the university in Berkeley. She tossed the sprig of pine away. I suppose I'd better get back to the house, or they'll be wondering what happened to me. I went out to take my little cousins to the nursery school. Do you mind if I walk back with you? Celia asked. Sumiko seemed pleased, so Celia looked about for Stephen and saw him taking a picture of an old woman in front of a priest who was telling fortunes. As they walked toward him, the priest handed the woman a slip of white paper, which she read anxiously. Then she shook her head in displeasure and went over to a nearby bush, where she tied the strip of paper to a twig. Celia saw that hundreds of other strips had been tied to the same bush at one time or another. Why is she doing that? Celia asked Sumiko. It was bad fortune. She's throwing it away by fastening to the bush. So superstitious. Gran says that people do seem to mix up the real and the unreal a lot in this country, Celia said. Even at our place, there's supposed to be a spirit that sometimes appears in the garden at night. Sumiko threw her a quick look, but for once, she didn't seem so sure of herself or so ready to comment. In fact, she appeared a little uneasy. But before Celia could ask if she had heard something, too, Stephen saw them and came over. Celia enjoyed his surprised look when she introduced Sumiko, and the girl spoke to him in English. Since Stephen didn't want to leave quite yet, Celia and Sumiko started up the hill together. They went slowly and looked at things along the way. There was a roll of stalls at the shrine grounds, selling inexpensive articles for passers-by, and the two girls stopped to look at the neat array of postcards, balls, whistles, pencils, candy, and other assorted articles. There was even a small flower stand, and Celia stopped before it in delight. Look at all the little bunches of flowers, she said. There aren't any flowers in our garden, so I think I'll buy a bunch for my grandmother, if they're not too expensive. They are sweet, Sumiko said. Maybe I'll take my mother a bunch, too. She asked the price, and the girls found that they had enough coins in their pockets to make the modest purchase. They walked on, each carrying a little bunch of flowers and sniffing at them now and then. Celia was still thinking about the uneasiness with which Sumiko had greeted her remark about the spirit in the garden, and now she returned to this subject. "'Have you heard about it, too?' she asked directly. "'I mean about the ghost in our garden.' 
Simico hesitated for just a moment. My grandfather says he's seen it. He thinks. She shook her head and broke off. I'm not going to believe in ghosts until I see one. You're like Stephen, then, Celia said, and let the topic go. She was beginning to feel that she knew the little ghost rather well and didn't want anyone to say anything harsh about her. As they walked uphill, Sumiko returned to her own problem. America was where my father wanted me to grow up. I, I miss him such a lot. Her voice broke again, and then she went on quickly to hide her emotion. My mother came out from Japan as a girl to bury my father, and she's different. I suppose it was difficult for my grandfather to lose his younger son to another country. And then his elder son, Hiro's father, died right after the war. Were those your grandfather's only two children? Celia asked. He has one daughter left, my little cousin's mother. Their father is working down in the south of Japan and isn't home with us just now. Anyway, with both of his sons gone, my grandfather is all the more determined that his grandchildren must grow up as proper Japanese. But I'm not going to be pushed into the pattern he wants to set for me. As far as Celia could see, there wasn't any way out of her new friend's predicament. The road curved pleasantly along the hillside, and every few moments a bada-bada or motorcycle or automobile went roaring past with a great tooting of its horn. Celia felt nervous about the lack of sidewalks and walked along the very edge of the road. When they reached the narrow beginning of their alley, they paused before the open front of the small store. There were trays of candy, fruit, Japanese cakes, bread, odds and ends of groceries, pencils and notebooks, and household supplies. A woman with a white apron over her kimono, and her kimono sleeves tied back with cords over her shoulders, smiled at Sumiko and stared with interest at Celia. She spoke to Sumiko in Japanese, and the two had quite a discussion. When the girls walked on, Sumiko smiled. She wanted to know if you dye your hair to get it that color, the way the stars in the Shinima, the movies, do. She didn't think he could really grow that way. Here in Kyoto, they don't see as many foreigners as they do in Tokyo, so you'll be stared at more. I know, Celia said, and they laughed together. But as they neared their own neighborhood, Sumiko sobered. Maybe I'd better go ahead alone. If I come right up to the house with you, Grandfather will be upset again. She looked at Celia wistfully. You think we... I mean, would you want to... Oh, yes, let's see each other again, Celia said quickly. She had a feeling that Sumiko felt a little lost between her two worlds. Probably the Japanese didn't quite accept or approve of her because she seemed American to them. Yet she looked Japanese and would never be taken for an American by foreigners. I'll watch for the times when you're out with the children, Celia promised. I didn't know I'd be so lucky as to meet someone here who speaks English. We'll have fun together this summer. Sumiko's whole face brightened. That'll be wonderful. Be seeing you. She ran ahead up the hill and left Celia to follow more slowly. Sayonara, said Celia softly after her. She knew the goodbye word at least. On ahead, she saw Sumiko reach the gate of her house and saw Hiro come out of it at just that moment. Sumiko held up the flowers to show her cousin, and he burst out laughing right in her face. 
He was still laughing as he came down the hill towards Celia. Sumiko stared at the little bouquet for a moment, and then, with a sudden angry gesture, tossed it in the gutter that ran beside the alley. Without a backward look, she went into the house. What could Hiro have said to Sumiko to make her throw her flowers away, Celia wondered. She put her own flowers behind her back as she passed him. Gran was home for lunch. When Celia gave her the flowers, she looked a little odd for a moment. Then she hugged her granddaughter and put the bouquet in a water glass in the center of the table. When Tani came in and saw it, she burst into giggles and had to cover her face with her kimono sleeve. Grand sighed and looked apologetically at Celia. I was afraid of that, honey. I do appreciate the flowers, and I think they're particularly pretty. But, you see, the Japanese buy these bouquets to leave at cemeteries as memorials. Tani-san thinks it's very funny that we're using them on the table here. When Stephen got home, he thought it was a good joke, too. Celia didn't mind for herself, but this told her something about Sumiko. How difficult it must be to look Japanese and have everyone expect you to be Japanese when you didn't know half the customs and must be forever making mistakes. Gran had spent part of the morning interviewing the head of a local department store to learn more about the trend these days in Japanese tastes, and she told them about that. Celia explained about her meeting with Sumiko, and when she mentioned that Sumiko's grandfather was a famous artist named Jantaro Sato, Gran pricked up her ears. Mr. Sato sounds like someone I'd like to interview. Maybe we can arrange an introduction through your friend. Celia shook her head doubtfully. Sumiko says her grandfather doesn't like Americans. She went back home alone today so that he wouldn't know that she'd been talking to me. That sounds sneaky, Stephen said. After all, Hiro came openly over to see us. It's different with Sumiko, Celia said, because she's a girl and from Japan. Stephen grinned. Great! In Japan they have the right idea, then. Gran was paying no attention to Stephen's banter. She sipped her coffee thoughtfully with a faraway look in her eyes, as if she were still trying to figure out a way to meet Mr. Sato. I'm happy that you've made a friend, Celia, Gran said, but I don't quite like the idea of your seeing Sumiko away from the house if it's against her grandfather's wishes. Wait a little while on pushing this friendship until we can find a solution. Now then, I've arranged to have my afternoon free, and I suggest that we three go downtown so you can get better acquainted with Kyoto. Also, you might as well start thinking about what sort of lessons you'd like to take. Lessons? Stephen echoed in dismay, and Celia, too, looked at her grandmother in surprise. Surely they hadn't come all this way to Japan to spend their time in school. The laugh wrinkles came out around Gran's eyes, and she tilted her head with its short curly brown hair as she looked at them in amusement. Sorry I frightened you like that, but everyone who comes here starts taking some sort of lessons. It's part of the fun. Of course, we take up things we couldn't possibly learn back in the States. And that gives us a better knowledge of Japan. You could take lessons in almost anything. The Japanese language, flower arranging, samisen lessons. The samisen is a stringed instrument you may have heard someone playing after you went to bed last night. Stephen made a face. I can see the kids at home if I go back and play a samisen for them or stick flowers in a vase. 
Give me time, dear, Gran said. I hadn't come to boys' interests yet. I don't think there's anything sissy about judo, for instance. Wait, you mean I could take lessons in those trick holes the Japanese use, where they toss each other around? I knew a boy your age in Tokyo who was doing just that, Gran said. Anyway, you might think about these things and keep your eyes open for anything else that interests you. We can probably find a teacher for almost anything you want to learn. After lunch, they walked over to a busy street where taxis cruised and took one of the tiny beetle-like cabs downtown. On the way, Gran asked the driver to stop at a small art shop. There she dismissed the cab. This is something for you to see, she told them. And besides, it might help me in the matter of Sumiko's grandfather. The sliding wooden door of the shop stood open, and Gran went through it, leading the way. Stephen, however, paused in the street where a driver had just pulled up with a bata-bata. Hey, wait a minute, he called to Celia, who would have followed Gran into the shop. Take a picture of me, will ya? She turned back and watched while Stephen began to make gestures at the driver as he stepped out of the little three-wheeled truck. He motioned to his camera, to himself, and to the seat of the truck, and the driver got the idea, grinning widely. Stephen set the various complicated gadgets on the camera, checked the focus, and handed the camera to Celia. Then he got into the seat of the truck while the driver stood watching in amusement. This'll make a great picture to show to kids at home. Okay, everything's set. Just go ahead and snap. But take it easy. That's the last shot on the roll. It always made Celia a little nervous to take a picture with Stephen's fancy camera. She put the strap carefully around her neck so she wouldn't have some horrible accident and drop it. Then she peered into the finder, while Stephen posed with his hands on the motorcycle handles. Celia put a finger on the shutter and prepared to click. But at that crucial moment, a passing cab honked its horn wildly, and she jumped, knowing too late that she'd clicked the picture at the same time. Stephen leapt out of the truck in annoyance. The bada-bada driver shook his head sympathetically, understanding what had happened, and went into the shop. Why couldn't you hold still? Stephen cried. Now there's no more film till I change the roll. The horn scared me, Celia faltered. But she knew Stephen was disgusted with her. Silently, she stepped into the shop, and Stephen followed, turning the film in his camera as he walked. The entryway was a dirt floor, while the real floor of the shop was raised several feet and was covered by tatami. The man dressed in a dark kimono with white tabby on his feet came out and bowed low to Gran. She introduced him as Mr. Yamamoto, and he seemed to know her and be glad to see her again. Gran sat down on the edge of the tatami and invited Celia to a place beside her. She asked to see any prints he might have of the work of Gentaro Sato. At the artist's name, Mr. Yamamoto made another low bow and disappeared into the shop's interior. Stephen had stayed near the door, changing the roll in his camera. He finished just as the bata-bata went off down the street in a series of sputtering roars. He ran to the door and looked out. Well, I lost that chance, he said in disappointment as he came back into the shop. I'm so sorry, Celia told him. Stephen just looked at her. Beautiful. Don't say that again, Celia said, surprising herself by the sharpness of her tone. Okay, okay, Stephen shrugged. Don't get so excited. 
Then he looked around the shop. This doesn't look much like a store, he said. Graham decided to overlook the sparks of the air and explained that in this sort of art shop, the proprietor brought out treasures that you might be interested in, showing you only a few things at a time. There were no counters, no showcases. The only decoration was a ceiling-high alcove on the far side with a shelf upon which a beautiful pale green bowl was set with a few lotus flowers tastefully arranged in it. Above, against the wall of the alcove, was a long strip picture with an ivory cylinder at the bottom so it could be rolled up. Celia tried to concentrate on it so that the warmth around her eyelids would go away. She certainly didn't want to quarrel with Stephen in front of Gran. The painting represented a mountainside with a few pine trees growing from it and curling waves of the sea far below. It was quite simple, and Celia found it satisfying to the eye. She could imagine this as a picture one might like to live with happily for a long time. Gran saw the direction of Celia's interest. That kakamono is undoubtedly the work of a famous artist. The alcove where it's hung is called the tokonoma, and is considered dedicated to the presence of the household gods and the emperor. When you're in a Japanese house, never step into it or lay anything there. It's the only place where pictures are ever hung. Celia stole a glance at Stephen and saw that he looked bored and rather cross. But for once she didn't care, or at least tried to pretend she didn't. In a few moments Mr. Yamamoto returned with several prints in his hand. He knelt on the cushion before them and held up one of the pictures for them to see. Gentaro Soto, he said his tone revealing his respect. In remarkably few strokes, the artist had portrayed three tiny sparrows sitting on a graceful branch of a tree. One after another, Mr. Yamamoto held up charming drawings of a pine tree, a spray of cherry blossoms, and a slope of a mountain with a waterfall, explaining that Gentaro Sato painted only nature these days. Celia nodded. That's what Sumiko said. He is awfully good, isn't he? Would you like one of these prints, Celia? Gran asked. For a presento, as they say in Japan. I won't offer you one, Stephen, since I know your interests lie elsewhere. Poring over the prints, Celia felt enormously better. Mr. Yamamoto excused himself and went back to the inner room again. When he returned, he carried a larger picture. This is the old-time style of Gentaro Sato, he said, and he knelt to hold it before them. This was not a print, but an actual painting. At first glance, Celia felt a shock of surprise, because the picture was so disturbingly different from the others. This picture revealed a more terrible kind of beauty. It portrayed a wounded Japanese warrior of feudal days, dressed in battle array, he wore a padded, long-sleeve upper garment and baggy, knee-length pantaloons of some embroidered material. From his waist hung wide shields of armor, and on his head was a fantastic horned helmet with a protecting skirt that protruded outward from his shoulders. Whoa, Stephen said, taking some interest again. That guy's sure taking a beating. The warrior had propped himself heavily with an outstretched hand against the trunk of a gnarled pine tree. 
From many places in his body shafts of arrows protruded, and his square shield lay upon the ground before him. In his right hand he held a sword, and though his enemies were not shown in the picture, you knew he faced them bravely in these last moments before he died. His mouth, indeed his entire face, was twisted in an agony of pain, yet you knew he strove bravely to hide what he felt. The picture had been painted in somber shades of brown and pale tan, with the black of the pine tree and dashes of scarlet in the samurai's costume for an accent. Celia gazed in fascination. Every austere line was beautiful and terrible at the same time. One had the feeling that the artist had felt something of this warrior's suffering and defeat. Mr. Yamamoto explained that this had been painted many years ago when Gentaro Sato was in his youth, and it had won him great acclaim. The artist had earned his fame by painting scenes of Japan in the Tokugawa days when that family had ruled the country. The samurai in this picture was supposed to be an ancestor of Mr. Sato, and the sword he was holding came down from generation to generation through the family. It was a long sword, Celia noted, the hilt hidden by the warrior's hand. She shivered and turned away from the picture, much preferring the quiet nature scenes with their gentle love of small growing things. And she had a feeling that this samurai and his death agonies would haunt her for a long time. Mr. Yamamoto carried the picture away with reverent hands. It was clearly one of his treasures and not for sale. When he returned, Celia selected the Sato print of Little Winter Sparrows, and the art dealer placed it between layers of cardboard and tied it up for her. She was very pleased with her presento, but she kept remembering the painting of the dying samurai.